Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. We had a good response from our first part in this series of the 2001 Dartmouth College murders in Hanover, New Hampshire. These were the murders of Half and Suzanne Zantop, professors at Dartmouth College. Suzanne was the head or the chair of the German department, and Half was a geologist, but I think his actual title was environmental scientist. And they were kind of like royalty at this place. They were really like rock stars, very well-loved. Students loved them, faculty. They were just very highly regarded. And to have something happen to them was a big deal in this community. And I'm going to tell you all about it. I think I gave you enough background on the Zantops coming over from Germany When they were young, both of them were collecting degrees like most people collect postage stamps or used to collect postage stamps. That's how bright and driven these two were. They had two children when they came over here, and they had met at Stanford College but had done some traveling the years after. They had two children, I believe, when the couple was living in Argentina. They returned to Europe, and from Europe... Half was recruited to be a professor at Dartmouth College. And I think I had mentioned this in the previous episode. They came over permanently by a Polish freighter that docked in Montreal. And from Montreal, they came down through New Hampshire and settled into Dartmouth College. And they almost immediately planted roots there. And they seemed to really enjoy themselves. They were living, I would have to say, the American dream here. Highly intelligent, highly employable, and well-liked. It's hard to ask for anything more from an immigrant, right? That's the bargain. You come to our new country, we help you, you help the country. They fulfilled that. So I also gave you some background on the two teenagers involved in this case. Jim Parker was 16 at the time, and his best buddy, Robert Tullock, was just a year older. And I think I gave you enough background, but I feel I may have shortchanged you on the backgrounds of Robert Tullock and Jim Parker. Jim Parker was the younger of the two, and he was kind of led around by Tullock by his nose. And... I just feel I don't know if I've given you enough background on these two. They've only lived, you know, into their teenage years. The background on the Xantops, I mean, it's just really their resume, right? It gives you their whole life. They've done so much. These two kids didn't get started, and after what they did, they never would. I also want to take the time to give some kudos to the authors of the book I've read in this one. It's called Judgment Ridge. And it was written by 
Dick Lair and his partner. And I got mine on Amazon. That's Judgment Ridge. You know, put that in their search feature. It comes right up. So some of the items I came up with in this book and in other places, I didn't know a lot of this information, quite frankly. It was 2001, so I guess the passage of time has dulled my memory a little bit. It was described at the time in the news as a thrill kill. I think it was a little bit more than that. It was a sincere robbery, but conducted by two fools, really, two immature fools. But one of the things, or a few of the things I didn't remember in this case, is that the Xantops were not the intended victims. They were victims of happenstance. During that night, and this happened, as I have mentioned, on January 27, 2001, the Xantops were the second stop. They were going to do the same thing, what they did. And I know I keep putting it off telling you exactly what they did. It is barbaric. But they made a stop at the Xantops' neighbors who were out skiing, right? So that's one of three prior attempts by Tulloch and Parker. I didn't remember that if I ever knew it. So I'm going to tell you about that. I'm going to tell you about these attempts as we go, but I know we need to get into the day of the crimes and its aftermath. And here we go. So guys, the deterioration of the mental state of Robert Tulloch was happening before people's eyes, but it was kind of subtle and I think Jim Parker would have noticed that he had gotten much more dark and depressing. And as I had mentioned in the previous episode, he's kind of this superior character. He thinks he's smarter than everybody else, that everybody's inferior. And now his class has moved in to senior year and is moving. They're moving to colleges, careers, Everything these two guys have shunned and said they didn't want, but now they're feeling left out. Those other people who Robert Tulloch thought were subservient to him are going off to great colleges. One in their group, they called it the crew, a female, was valedictorian of the class. And other people I had mentioned previously were racing motorcycles at a high level, enjoying life. These kids were just lost. And one of the final things that happens really is this debate. There was a debate between like Hanover and Chelsea, Vermont. And for whatever reason, the debate coach wanted Robert involved. He always wanted to help Robert. And he thought having Robert focused on debate was the way to do that. And so he did. And Robert Tulloch, he was very intelligent, but he was supremely lazy. So Robert does as he's asked, participate in this debate. And during this debate, he uses like a racial slur and he's very derogatory. And this is a gentlemanly and a ladylike endeavor. It's not a sport. I know. I think I called it a sport earlier. But you treat your opponent in debate as you treat your friend. And that was not what Robert did. And it had seemed to this debate coach that Robert and Jim, to a lesser extent, were just making fun of the kids who were trying to do their best. And it seemed Robert intentionally screwed up this debate for Chelsea. 
And he was also asked by the debate coach to be a judge for the lower grades. And after that happened, after he ruined his own debate, he was kind of furious because they almost immediately gave him the loss, the big L, right? And he went from that big loss and they chastised him, right? Because he was ungentlemanly and actually unprepared. And that was Robert Tullock's MO in everything he did in life. He just had delusions of grandeur. So the debate is really a big deal. It was like the World Series of debate or World Cup of debate, if you want to get into it. But the second part of Tullock's assignment was to be a judge for the lower grades. And at a certain point, he went right from that loss, and he was angry to the judge's chair for the lower grades. And I think there was some Hanover kids who were debating, some females, some girls, and he was very hot on them, commenting on their appearance and just, again, way out of bounds, just kind of strange, really. It reduced the girls to tears at first, but after that, they got pissed off and went right to the coach and complained. And, you know, somehow they work out an agreement or whatever, and they save the debate and all this. But Tullock caused some real damage in that, and everybody was disappointed. And again, they just pointed their fingers at him saying, you're unprepared. Basically, you're not as smart as you think you are. And this kid thought very highly of himself. And Jim Parker was there playing, you know, second fiddle, just being an ass as well. Both Jim and Robert had mostly wrapped up all of their credits. They had to hang around school for a little bit. But they were disparaging everybody, even the kids going off to good colleges or colleges in general. They were just that brand of teenage ass, you know? And I said in the previous episode, we all kind of grow out of that. These two never would. So I had mentioned previously that these kids' minor crimes were escalating. At one point, they were in a mine. They stole a vehicle. And I think only Robert got caught for it. They didn't do any real damage. They were kind of just driving this vehicle around the mine and all this. Just typical asshole behavior. And they got caught. Well, one of them got caught. Nothing ever came of it. And come around June 2000, the duo went to a music festival, Ben and Jerry's One World, One Heart, like a mini Woodstock, if you will. And I think that was in Vermont, on the Vermont side of the border. But they drove their friends there, and they kind of left their friends to go scout locations to break into. Now, from the outset, they kind of developed a plan where they'd break into someone's house, and the methods would vary as time would pass. But they'd break in, take ATM cards, whatever cash they had, whatever valuables that homeowner had, and then they were going to kill them. And they had no compulsion about killing them. And Jim Parker would later say, if there were children in the house, we would have killed them too. So these are the types of people we're dealing with here. So at this festival, these two slink away and they start casing houses to break into. And they do break into one. But there was nobody home because this was like a touristy area and it wasn't the correct season. So that's an attempt there. And after each attempt, they would go over their list. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? 
come July of the year 2000, these two became serious that they were going to do it, that they were going to kill somebody. For Robert Tulloch, it would later come out that was his primary motivation. Jim thought they were still trying to just get some money and trinkets for their adventure in Australia. I just can't believe how juvenile that sounds, right? Because that's what it was. So now it's the following month, July 2000, and the duo took Jim Parker's mom's green Subaru to Goose Green Road, just outside of Chelsea, Vermont, and they dug a grave in a remote section. I mean, it's Vermont. A lot of it's remote. But they dug a large grave, enough for several people, in the woods. And at that point... They put their scheme into action. They end up going up to a home owned by Andrew and Diane Patty, P-A-T-T-I. And they had a son who was like seven or eight at the time, I believe. And these guys, who I believe, were originally from the state of New York. Vermonters call those people flatlanders, right? But they went up to this house. It was remote, and they knock on the door. But before they knock on the door and try this ruse, they cut the phone lines to the home guys. They were serious. Make no mistake. So Andrew Patty hears something outside, sees somebody milling about, and Andrew is strapped with a 9 millimeter on his side. And this guy comes up. It was Robert Tulloch. Jim Parker was waiting in the bushes with a knife. And... Robert Tulloch goes to the door and asks for help because his car had broken down, right? So the guy gets the heebie-jeebies from the kids, so he lets the kids see that he's carrying a gun on his hip. Doesn't take it out, doesn't threaten them, right? But he says, I'll call you a tow truck and all this, but that's all I can do to help you. Like, he couldn't see the car. And there had been a spate of they call them push-in robberies in Vermont, and this guy wasn't going to be one. And the guy was there with his son. I believe his wife was still in New York or just away for the weekend, but it was just father and son. So this guy's antenna goes up, right? And he lets him see that he's strapped. Robert Tulloch craps himself, thinking that he's going to have a fight on his hands, and they abort the plan in totality. So... Andrew Patty was kind of shaken up over this. He ends up calling the sheriff's office and all that. He wants it logged because he discovers his phone lines had been cut, right? And just previous to that, the duo had done another break-in at Patty's house and broke into a shed, breaking a window. So this guy, Patty, Andrew Patty, his antenna was up. Thank God it was. Uh, him and his son would be gone today. So after what these two goofballs do at the Patty residence, they regroup and they want to get another ruse together because the broken down car thing had been played out in horror movies in real life. And they saw that that really heightened Andrew Patty's alert, right? His alert system, his antenna went up with that. There's no car to be seen. Now I've got to come out of my house and help you. No, that wasn't happening. So they regroup and they start scoping out new homes. But just after that, in a striking coincidence, guys, Andrew Patty called the local handyman to help him 
secure his house and he installed like a burglar alarm and all this. And who does he call for help with that? Jim Parker's dad, the local handyman. Can you believe that? Striking coincidence, no? It was at this point that the duo ordered stun guns off the internet using Parker's mother's credit card. She gets them, goes ape shit, right? But the kids kind of deflect her as saying, we're using the stun guns to pop off the tops of street signs so we could take the street signs off them. Mother kind of goes ape shit, right? But she doesn't make the connection that that's just a foolish teenage story that anybody buying a stun gun is looking to hurt somebody else. And this wouldn't be their last foray in the stun guns. They do one other. I don't know if they ever arrived in time. But they were trying to buy stun guns and they'd later move on to knives. On New Year's Day 2001, Jim Parker ordered these SOG knives. They used to call them Rambo knives in my day, but these knives are legitimate special forces knives. I believe that the SEALs carry them in Vietnam and branches of the military carry them today. It's like serrated on one size. It's a heavy duty killing knife, really. So Parker orders two of them and the internet then certainly isn't like it is today. You basically order it by just printing your name and they send this guy in Massachusetts a money order. On January 6, 2001, that is when that debacle I had previously mentioned about the debate, Robert Tullock's performance at this debate, you know, less than Stella, it pissed this kid off. It hurt his feelings. People were calling him out and saying, you're basically stupid and Everybody was just disappointed in the kid, and that was about par for the course for this kid. He had such an inflated view of himself. So on January 12th, the knives arrive at Jim Parker's house, and I guess mom doesn't see the knives come in. She had caught the stun guns but didn't catch the knives. And what they were going to tell mom is they were going to use these for rock climbing, and... It just doesn't fit. They're just way too heavy for rock climbing. You could use, you know, five different tools instead of a knife in that instance, right? So now Parker and Tullock by this time had developed a system of what they were going to do. They didn't like saying, oh, my car had broken down. Can you help us? And then attacking. They knew they needed to be invited into the home to perpetrate this attack. Otherwise, it's kind of a free-for-all outside, right? People can run. Andrew Patty would have shot them dead. So that wasn't an option. So they come up with the ruse of an environmental survey, guys. It's Vermont. Everybody loves to talk about the environment and all this. And that would certainly come into play later. But on January 20th, they tried to put this play into action. They went to the home of Franklin Sanders and they went up to him and they've got some paperwork with them. They knock on the door and say to this guy, we're conducting an environmental survey. We go to the mountain school. The mountain school is kind of like a famous residential environmental school in the area and everybody would have known about it. So they approached this Franklin Sanders. I believe his wife was out, 
but he was in his backyard working on his pool, kind of like heavy-duty work. And he tells these kids almost immediately, I don't have time for it. And he kind of ushers them out. If he had engaged these kids in conversation and sat them in the house, it would have been a different outcome. And again, I have to point to the foolishness of this plan, right? These kids had calculated among themselves, and I don't know how they come up with this number, that they needed $10,000 in cash to flee to Australia, right? They don't get passports. It's just like a Peter Pan fantasy with these goofballs. So ill-conceived, but that was the plan. To be honest, I think they may have been a little afraid of Franklin Sanders. You know, he's working on his own house. He's got tools around. He's a smart, kind of a streetwise guy. But this guy just ushers them out. He just doesn't have time for it and wasn't going to put up with it. And they do get back into their own vehicle, guys, right? You're using your own vehicle in this. Anybody driving down the street would have saw the plate, would have saw the car. So, man... They envision themselves to be so smart, but they're using Parker's mom's vehicle. It's unbelievable. So they developed this ruse with the environmental survey. And during this time frame, Robert would ask the homeowner, whatever home they came into, could I have a glass of water? And that was a signal to grab your knives and start stabbing. Can you imagine that? How much money do they think they're going to get from people? Do they think there's going to be 10 grand in one house in Vermont? Nobody has that kind of cash in their house anymore. Not really. And what else? Trinkets, trophies. How are you going to sell those things? To be honest with you, Robert Tulloch, I think, just wanted to kill someone. And he was bringing Jim along as his pet, really. So, guys, that brings us up to January 27, 2001, and I've got to give you a warning right here. What we're about to go through is a violent, violent episode, violence against women, and this is your only warning, right? This is Boston Confidential, so if you can't handle that, now's the time to bail. So you probably think January 27th that these kids go right to the Xantop household. They do not. They stopped at the home of Audrey and Bob McCollum, neighbors of Half and Suzanne Zantop, and good friends of theirs. And these guys had went out skiing. It was a Saturday, and it was New Hampshire. <laughs> That's what people do. They went skiing, and they were gone for the afternoon. So at that point, they go next door to Half and Suzanne Zantop's home. It was a beautiful modern home. And it was actually in a better location for what they were going to do. And they stopped there and they knock on the door. They could see smoke coming out of the chimney. So they thought somebody was home. And pretty soon half Xantop comes to the door. He's kind of hurried. His wife is in the kitchen making dinner. And I think it's an early dinner. And they had a friend invited over. And the three of them were going to have dinner together. And... As I had mentioned, the Xantops were loved. They always had plans. They always had guests coming and going. Half comes to the door, and they give the spiel about going to the mountain school, and they were here to do an environmental survey. And Half kind of hems and haws and says, I don't know if I can do that. 
my wife's cooking right now. We have a friend coming for dinner. But he relents, right? Because what is Half's title? He is certainly a geologist, but I believe his actual title at the college was environmental scientist, right? And if you're a geologist, basically you study the earth. So Half wanted to help, right? That's what his name really means in German, to help. So he wants to help these kids because they have an interest in the earth just like he does, and he wants to promote that. And at a certain point, they're going back and forth. They mention the mountain school, which they don't go to, but Half's impressed by it. He goes, I like what they're doing at the mountain school. Come on in. I can give you a few minutes. He brings them into his study. Suzanne doesn't come out. She's still in the kitchen cooking. So he sits these two kids down in like folding chairs, and he's in like a, a desk chair because he's got a bad back. And he starts to talk to them. And pretty soon, it becomes readily apparent that these kids were not prepared. And Half says that. He says, you're just simply not prepared. That kind of pisses Robin off. Because that was the criticism of the debate, right? And as school president, he wasn't prepared. He was lazy. So... Dick Lear, the author of Judgment Ridge, says this was a turning point and Half may have sealed his own fate unknowingly and, you know, not really of his own accord. But this conversation goes on for about 10 minutes and Half does want to help. And he thinks of a friend of his, a colleague, and he starts looking through his computer for the name. And then he remembers he's got the name in his wallet. So he kind of moves to the side to reach his rear wallet and pick out the guy's phone number for these kids. And that's when Robert reaches into his backpack, takes the sheath off the knife, this combat knife, which is about eight inches long. And before half can protest or anything, he gets up and he stabs the knife. And it is said later by Jim Parker that the knife went all the way through half, all the way into the hilt. And Robert Tulloch doesn't stop. And he thinks this is going to be quiet and won't disturb the wife in the kitchen. Dead wrong. Half starts screaming. He starts fighting. Robert Tulloch and him go over the chair, the office chair that half is sitting in, and he continues to stab him. And he stabs him in the chest, neck, and face, you know, it's 10 or 11 times. I think some of these wounds were so bad that they didn't know if that was one wound or two, right? Because the knife can go in the same hole, I don't know. But it is brutal, and it is barbaric, and he's stabbing him for no reason in his own study 10, 11 times. It's a bloodbath. Blood is going everywhere. Half is now on the ground, and Robert is kind of straddling him, and he was still stabbing him. He went into a frenzy, and he'd later laugh about it with Jim Parker, believe it or not. But the screaming and the commotion makes Suzanne run right into the room. Man, if she only went out the door, but that's not what she did. She ran in to help her husband. She loved him. And she sees, she screams, and she jumps on Half's legs and tries to help him and push this maniac off. She doesn't understand what's going on. 
And at that point, Robert Tullock looks in the eyes of his partner, Jim Parker, and says, cut her throat. And Jim Parker does just that. He takes this massive, sharp hunting knife and pulls the blade across her neck, and she loses blood so quickly she goes right to the floor and is dead within seconds. Now, they're both dead, half put up a valiant struggle, but the blood loss was just too much. These were gaping wounds, and, man, you think it can't get any worse. At that point, after Jim Parker, remember that name, Jim Parker cut her throat. Jim Parker did that. And after Parker cuts her throat and drops her to the ground, Robert Tullock gets off half sand top and walks over to Suzanne and stabbed her several times right in the head. He'd later say to Jim Parker that it was an experiment and it felt like the knife was going into a pumpkin. He wanted to see if these knives, they were really high on these knives, they loved them, and he wanted to see if it would puncture a human skull. That's what the experiment was. So after this all goes down, it's a bloody, nasty scene, and... They grabbed the wallet because half was almost had it out all the way to give him that phone number. They take about $300, I think it might have been $340 out of his wallet, and take the cash. These kids are so stupid, they didn't realize on the way in to Half's study, his office, that there were tens of thousands of dollars worth of art on the walls, like a bronze sculpture. These guys had collected these things on their world travels, and they were worth thousands of dollars. One was a bronze mask, one of them, by Rodin. That was worth thousands by itself. And there were other things on the walls, invisible to these kids, would have fully funded their Peter Pan adventure. You know, Peter Pan tainted with Jeffrey Dahmer. So this was the exact plan, and they conducted it... It's crazy that these two kids could do that. One just reaches into his backpack and pulls out a combat knife and stabs it into someone's chest for no reason. And then the other kid cuts a woman's throat and lets her bleed to death right in front of him for 340 bucks. So again, this was extremely bloody. The crime scene was a horror show. Robert Tullock would later say to Jim Parker that he went into a frenzy, like a heightened state, you know, almost like a religious type experience, this loser explained it as. And while he was stabbing half to death, he stabbed a bookcase that was nearby, like above half's head. And then he also stabbed himself in the leg, which frequently happens in stabbing attacks. The assailant cuts themselves, and that's exactly what happened here. It was a pretty big gash above his knee. And I believe if this was further along in the 2000s, DNA would have been recovered exactly from his blood there. I think it would have had to have been co-mingled. So these two kids, they kind of look around. I think now they're in a panic mode, and they kind of hightail it out of there. And they leave the crime scene as it is, both bodies lying right where they were murdered. 
and get back into Jim Parker's mom's green Subaru and just get out of Dodge. So the duo leaves the house the way they came in. They were parked right in the driveway, guys. And at about 6.30, the Zantops friend, Carol Johnson, who also worked at the college with the Zantops, arrived for dinner. And she walks in, and it's just a weird vibe. You know, she's usually greeted at the door, first by Suzanne, then by half, and it's a big production, you know. This is how the Zantops were, like, oh, so great to see you. Like, they had just seen them hours earlier at school, and they fawn over people. They just loved, you know, and Carol was waiting for that, and she never got it, and the door was open, and that was odd. And she just calls out, Suzanne, I'm here, I'm here for dinner, half, and she walks in, doesn't see anything, comes down the little hallway and turns into half study and sees them both on the floor. And there's a tremendous amount of blood around both bodies. And she loses it. And she runs out to a neighbor and they call the police. They call the Hanover police. This was in the village of Etna, but it's still Hanover. You know, it's just a neighborhood within Hanover. Hanover police, for their part, arrive seven minutes after being called. You can't ask for much more. And the cops go in, they see what they see, and it's a massive crime scene. And I believe the first cops on the scene kind of back out, and they wait for the arrival of detectives. And just like in Massachusetts, and I'm sure in other jurisdictions, the state police handle all homicides the Hanover police are still involved, but they just don't get enough homicides, and the state police do. So that's who handles them, and everybody helps one another. It's not a real jurisdictional beef. Half was found lying further into the study and Suzanne closer to the door. And at a certain point, a detective of the Hanover police, his name was Eric Bates, and he was a military veteran, and he is looking at the crime scene and going over. And he said, I have never seen anything like that, even during his military service or after as a police officer. He said it was just so brutal. Basically, he'll never forget it. And again, there were valuables everywhere. So they kind of immediately discounted a robbery. And they didn't know that half's wallet had been taking at this time. This was just, you know, hours into the homicide investigation. But originally they thought it was a murder-suicide because there were so many wounds. They thought some of these wounds were gunshot wounds. So they thought this was a crime of passion between the couple, and it wasn't. A detective from the New Hampshire State Police by the name of Sergeant Mark Mudgett soon arrives, and he takes over as the primary investigator. And one of the things that happened, I think one of the good things that happened in this investigation, and I've got to call them out when they do good work as well as bad, they did an excellent job with this crime scene because this Eric Bates didn't allow the whole Hanover Police Department to traipse through the crime scene. And if you want to look to the opposite of that case, probably John Benet Ramsey, right? Where 
Several individuals were in and out of that house. In their defense, they thought it was a kidnapping and not a homicide until much later in the investigation during that day. But Eric Bates and the Hanover Police Department set up a crime scene and they cordoned off the area because Eric Bates points out that, geez, there looks like a bloody boot print right there. And he kind of ropes that off so nobody else walks through it. He ropes it off using kindling wood next to the fireplace and does a good job stabilizing the crime scene, basically. And I think this is what ended up solving the case was the crime scene management here, and they did an excellent job. So as I had mentioned previously, the crime scene, the chairs were all thrown over. There was a table, I believe, that was thrown over. Half was sitting when he was originally stabbed in a desk chair. They called it an ergonomic chair, and the other two were sitting in these folding chairs. And it was kind of all over the place. And in some of the recreations, the carpet is kind of pulled up. And when they push everything back down, there's two combat knife sheets, right? So it can go onto your belt. Basically, you put the knife in and you don't stab yourself in the leg and you can carry it to and fro. These knives were pretty hefty. The sheaths were pretty hefty as well. And the cops couldn't believe their luck. And now they're thinking, now we have two possible perpetrators here. And they were on the scent almost immediately. But guys, stabbing is such a personal and violent invasion. The New Hampshire State Police and the Hanover Police kind of thought that this could possibly be a love triangle, right? Because that generates the kind of emotion where you'd use these knives, these basically butcher knives on people because of anger, hate, jealousy, a lot of emotion behind it. And they couldn't see anything visibly missing from the property. So that's what they were left with. And then they found out they were pretty highly regarded professors at Dartmouth. So the next day, word gets out to Dartmouth College, and through their newspaper, it goes all over the wires, and pretty soon it's national news. But in New England, this was wall to wall. Nobody could believe it. They don't even lock their doors in Hanover for the most part. You can walk right in, or at least you could then. And nobody could believe it. The sense of an invasion of privacy and horror was just all over the news. And people were wondering who could have done this. It has to be an outsider. And it was to some extent, but not as far as people originally thought. So besides the two knife sheaths, right, there was the boot print. And that went almost immediately to the lab as did the knife sheets, but they really wanted to get the blood evidence to the experts. So they got one out of bed from the New Hampshire State Police, and they started work on it right away. And they used the FBI. The FBI has a database of footwear, believe it or not, that they try to track down criminals through. And they really hit the jackpot there because they came up with a brand of high-tech hiking boot 
Forgive me, guys, I forget the brand name of the boot, but it began with a V, and it was heavy-duty hiking, like professional rock climbers, hikers would use. So that was good. That kind of narrows the scope a little bit, and they sent the knife sheets to the lab as well, and there were fingerprints on at least one of the knife sheets, and they ran that through NCIC, that is the fingerprint database but they came up with no hits. And not everybody's fingerprints are in the system. You know, if you get a gun license, your fingerprints go in there. Some jobs, if you're ever arrested for anything, you get fingerprinted and it goes to the FBI. But nothing came up right away for the fingerprints they found on the night sheets. So this was a pretty big deal. It was a lot of work going on because... Just to do this comparison with the footwear, the state police had to take everybody's shoes that came into the house that day. And there was 14 people who had to give up their shoes to the state police to be compared against the prints. And they were readily discounted. So they knew they had, or at least they thought they had, a boot print of the killer and they also had fingerprints on the knife sheets. So a gentleman by the name of Mike Delaney, he was an assistant attorney general for that area in New Hampshire. He was assigned basically as the assistant district attorney, they call them assistant attorney generals up there. So Mike Delaney was given the task of this case. Later, a woman by the name of Kelly Ayotte, who people may know went on to become a senator from New Hampshire, was Mike Delaney's partner, also an assistant attorney general for this case. She'd later go on to say that this was the most brutal crime she'd ever seen, and she had been involved in some other cases that a lot of people would say were equally as brutal, but she puts this on the top of the hit parade for depravity, really. Suzanne was stabbed 11 times half-stabbed 10 times, and both of their throats were cut wide open, and there was blood everywhere. It was a total horror show. So in the days after the killing, they start to focus on the workplace, Dartmouth College, and as soon as they get there, people are just singing their praises. I mean, people are in mourning, literally, and they get to investigating. The cops really need to get the ball rolling, and they start to speak to people in half's classes, right? And during one of these classes, a student reported that half had like a shouting match with a student just as class ended. And when the cops went to go talk to that student, he had this big abrasion on his forehead. So the cops must have been thinking, geez, this guy was in a beef with these people and he's hurt and all this. But they go on to interview this student, and he said, no, I loved Half. I was speaking to him in Spanish, and Half spoke Spanish as well, and this other girl didn't. And it may have come across as like an argument, but it was a kidding-type conversation. The two frequently spoke Spanish back and forth, and it was more of a joking or jocular conversation. And this kid was devastated by Half's death. And pretty quickly, it was ascertained he had an ironclad alibi. 
But imagine that you go to talk to somebody who had an argument with a murder victim and he's got a cut on his head and it's still not him, right? So the cops really have to work with the evidence they have. They continue all that work at the college, but they knew the knives, the sheaths, may be key to solving this homicide. And immediately, Sergeant Mudgett of the New Hampshire State Police starts working that end of it. By this time, the FBI had become involved, mostly because of Half and Suzanne Zantop's international ties. So the Hanover police knew if it went in that direction, they'd need FBI assistance. And they were already getting it on the footwear program that was being run on those high-tech boots, the boot print that they had found, you know. So the FBI was involved. They set up a task force. And these are the things that the FBI really excel at. They can set up a whole room with phone banks. They do it all the time. They have the expertise and the technology to assist these smaller departments. And I think it really hit the sweet spot here in this investigation. So initially, they did not discount the whole love triangle thing, but after they started talking to people, it became readily apparent that Half and Suzanne were fully committed to each other with no outside interest. And I think that's got to depress you a little bit as an investigator, right? Because that's the usual route, right? Love, hate, murder. That's how it goes. So the task force starts to go to local knife retailers with the sheath, you know, or photographs of the sheath. And they start asking questions. And the people who sell these knives, they're kind of experts in it. And they identified the manufacturer of the knives. The cops, the task force, go to the manufacturer directly and... The manufacturer unfortunately tells them, you're probably looking to go through 5,000 knives. And the investigators are undeterred. They will do that. But they started putting together a plan. It's likely that these two knives would have been purchased at the same time. And in order to narrow that aspect of the investigation, that's where they look first. If they didn't get any hits on the two knives together, they would have done uh, database search on two knives separately. But they start with the two knives together, and actually, pretty quickly, they hit pay dirt. And also, during this intervening time, guys, it became a fact that Half never went anywhere without his wallet, and his wallet was not on him or at the crime scene. So now the investigators believe at least this was half a robbery. But they're kind of confused because all those pieces of art, if you just looked at them, that bronze mask probably would have looked like gold to a kid. And they would just kind of flummox. They brought in an FBI profiler by the name of Brian Fitzell. And he came to the conclusion, he worked up a profile for this case saying that these were thrill killers, disorganized, likely very young. And they may have wounded themselves in the attack. And they likely would have changed behavior in the days after. So people in their lives may pick up on that. So that was the profile going forward. So after visiting several local knife retailers, the investigators realized they have to move on to the Internet. Right. And again, it's not like it is today. Back then, it was really at its infancy. But pretty quickly, they came up with a company that had sold two knives together in Massachusetts. 
And when they looked further into this company, they found out that the knives were shipped to Chelsea, Vermont. And that's within 30 miles of half and Suzanne Zantop's house. And the name on the order was James Parker. And James Parker had, just before the homicides, received those knives in the mail. Naturally, they all head out. They gang up and head out to James Parker's house. And they get to Parker's house and they kind of instantly deflated because they look at Parker and they say, oh, Jesus, can't be a kid. And they ask him, hey, James, produce those knives that you purchased on the internet. And he tells them it's all for rock climbing and all this. So Parker can't produce them. He says him and his friend Robert Tulloch sold them to a mysterious person at the Burlington Army Navy store in Burlington, Vermont. And so now the Mudgett's there, uh, Sergeant Mark Mudgett, and I guess the hair goes up on his neck. He thought this kid would just produce the knives. And this kid tells a story of rock climbing. They order the knives thinking they need them. They're too unwieldy. They're too heavy. And now they want to get some of their money back for them. But he's not buying it. Mark Mudgett is not buying it. And that whole Army-Navy store was the story that James Parker and Robert Tulloch had come up with previously. They had known almost immediately that they had forgotten the knife sheaths and actually went by the crime scene. They drove by the crime scene, these dim-witted bastards, thinking they'd go back and pick up the knife sheaths if nobody had discovered the bodies yet. I guess they didn't realize food was still cooking on the stove when they left. And the cops were there when Tulloch and Parker drove by. Can you imagine that? So they take Jim Parker down to the sheriff's station in town in Chelsea, Vermont. He's fingerprinted and all that. And then almost simultaneously, they go over to Robert Tulloch's house in Chelsea as well. And they find high-tech boots right? Imagine that. So now the knives are missing. We have a boot that may be a fit, but they really feel like they don't have enough to arrest these kids. And I, I think they might've, but they don't think these kids are going to run. They spoke to the parents. The parents seem like good people. The kids on the face of it seem okay. They're answering the questions. They go down to be fingerprinted. They don't really seem to have anything to hide. So by the next day, the two kids are released back to their parents. Parker goes back to his house and Tulloch to his. But they know they're caught. They know they're caught. And the next day, as morning breaks in this, Jim Parker's fingerprints were found to be on the sheets, right? Because they took their fingerprints at the sheriff's station. And then they had a match for the high-tech boots that they took from Robert Tulloch's house. I don't know if they ever got a blood match on the sole of that shoe, but it was the same boot, same boot type, and they would have had enough for an arrest at that point. The problem being, as soon as Jim Parker and Robert Tulloch were released, they escaped from their homes individually, grabbed up some stuff, and hit the road in Mom's green Subaru, right? So the police are kind of kicking themselves, but how far can these two kids go? But it's a dangerous situation. They committed a brutal double homicide here, 
and the police were nervous, so they put out an APB. And I believe it's the next night that the Subaru is found in Massachusetts in Sturbridge by a state trooper, and they kind of tracked the kids. They went to this place in Sturbridge because it's a truck stop. They hopped in a tractor trailer somehow with these people con their way in and said they needed a ride south and west. I think they told the truckers the ultimate destination was California, and they got a ride in those general directions. In the meantime, when they noticed the kids had basically escaped, they get a warrant to search both the homes, and guys, I can't tell you how stupid this is, but they actually find the knives in Robert Tulloch's room, the knives used in the homicide. Can you imagine that? These stupid bastards weren't even smart enough to get rid of the knives they used to end two beautiful people. So this is kind of the FBI's ballywick as well, because they have a system where they can contact trucking companies through the dispatch system and all that. And they do that, and they want truckers to be on the lookout for two teenagers basically hitchhiking southwest. And pretty soon they get a hit on that. One of the truckers was using a CB to see if anybody else in the trucking community could take these two kids further west. And actually a trooper, I think it's an Indiana State trooper, gets on the radio and says, yeah, drop him at so-and-so gas station. I can take him as far as Wisconsin. Who knows? I don't know what they said, but yeah. Drop him at a gas station, and so the trooper calls for backup, and both Robert Tulloch and Jim Parker were taken into custody then. And at a certain point, Robert Tulloch just gives up the ghost and says, yeah, that's me, you got me. And they go into custody. I believe that happened on February 19th at about 4 a.m. So, man, it all comes to an end, but the story really doesn't end there. So to say that the community of Chelsea, Vermont was shocked is a massive understatement. They couldn't believe one of their boys. And you know how it is in small communities. Everybody claims everybody else. And everybody in town knew these kids. They weren't straight arrows, but they weren't the worst of the bunch either, you know. So really, like, people were doubting it, you know. But it came out that there was, in fact fingerprints, there was boot prints, and during the investigation after Tulloch is taken into custody, he's got a massive gash above his knee, and I bet there was some blood transfer there, but it was too early in the DNA days to bring that to fruition. I think that if it happened now, they would have had a lot more DNA, but they had the fingerprints on the knife sheets, I guess when the vehicle, the Subaru, was examined, Robert Parker's blood was commingled with Half's or the wife Suzanne's within the vehicle itself. So they're fully tied to this, both of them. And the only way out of this is a deal. And Robert Tulloch was still in this blind teenage loyalty. But I think that started wearing off pretty quickly for Jim Parker. And eventually they offered Parker a deal. I don't know if they needed to because they had enough evidence and they knew enough about the case 
they thought to convince a jury, but they wanted a slam dunk. It's a nasty, dumb old homicide, and you can't take any risks. So they offer him a deal. They offer Jim Parker a deal, and he takes it. I think it was like 25 years to life or something. He ends up being charged with a type of second-degree homicide, and it was first-degree homicide for Tulloch, and that's how it was going to go. And Jim ended up testifying against Robert Tulloch, or was going to, and I think Tulloch ended up pleading guilty because he couldn't go up against the evidence that was provided. And Jim Parker gave up the ghost. I think Kelly Ayod asked him at one point if there were children in one of these houses, would you have continued? And he said, yes, we would have killed the children as well. So when I started this story, guys, I said to myself, yeah, this is probably the best outcome. They got Parker to turn on Talek and all's good. I'm coming off that a little bit now. I really am because I think they had enough evidence for two convictions here. And what they got from this plea bargain offer was the insight that Jim Parker provided. And I guess it worked because Tulloch takes the plea, everybody's in jail. But my problem with it now is Jim Parker is eligible for parole. He was eligible in 2023, I believe. And the families got so upset he rescinded his application for parole, but I think he's due to get out of prison starting this year. So he's going to be walking free. And he cut Suzanne Zantop's throat from ear to ear. He didn't have to be prodded to be part of this. He did it joyfully, gleefully. And that's where I change my mind when learning the details of this crime. It is so planned out. It's poorly planned. But they tried to do this to at least two other people and almost got shot by Andrew Patty for their troubles. And I wish they had, quite frankly. So another item in this case, Jim Parker was a juvenile when he did this. And the 2013 Supreme Court case says you can't give juveniles a life without parole sentence. So he is going to get a shot at parole, and he would have anyways, but he had that plea deal. So he's about ready to get out. And let me tell you, his time in prison, he's made the most of it. If you can ever redeem yourself from such brutality, I don't think you can. But he did get a master's degree. He's a mentor in there and like a trustee. So he's utilized his time. If you're asking people to repent for their crimes and make something of themselves, this kid did. But Robert Tulloch, for his part, he just went an entirely different direction. He's been nothing but a problem in prison. And they actually think Robert Tulloch is a psychopath or a sociopath. And these delusions of grandeur, they kind of illustrate that, right? He's got really nothing to back it up, and that's a characteristic of being a psychopath, sociopath, from what I understand. So I remember when there was a plea in this case, and nobody really liked it, but I guess the daughters, Mariana and Veronica, signed off on it, and it made the case a slam dunk. So I guess that's the thought process there. And they're attorneys, and they take the emotion out of it. And I guess part of me says it's the best you're going to get. 
On the other hand, this guy did cut somebody's throat knowingly, and he would have done it two times prior at a minimum. And they had planned on doing it again, guys. You know, they had thought they had gotten away with this. They were going to do it again. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you on this one. I'm going to leave you here and get on to the next one. Drop me a line at Barry at BostonConfidential.net and let me know what you think about Jim Parker getting out of prison. Kind of haunts me a little bit, right? Just really doesn't sit well with me. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. I'll see you on the flip side and I'll get on to the next one for you.